Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the Fellowship of the Ring class. It looks like pretty much... Every, whoops, sorry. Look at that. Sorry about that. It looks like pretty much everybody who was going to be able to make it live has made it in. I think we made up one or two stragglers, but that's good. Um, let me just sort of start off quickly by giving you a little bit of an orientation for those of you who are new. Um, there's not too much that you need to know about the interface here. It's pretty simple, especially from your end. Uh, during these sessions, I'm not generally going to be activating your mics um, because that tends to lead to a lot of delay and a certain degree of chaos. Um, However, I will be relying uh, upon your contributions and your, uh, your, your additions to discussion here. Um, so let me show you how that's going to work. You will see on your little control panel pane that you have there on your screen um, a, a tab um, labeled questions. So click on that, and anything you, if you type in and enter something there, then I will see it pop up on my screen here in front of me in real time. Uh, and that way, that's the best way if you have, uh, you know, I'm, I'll be asking you questions about stuff that you're looking at. That's how you can ins uh, enter your answers. If there are questions, things you would like to bring up, um, that would be the best way to do that too. You know, as I've said, I, I uh, you know, really want these things to be as uh, as interactive as 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 possible. I have been uh, having just a delightful time um, with my with my uh, master's degree classes at Mythgard so far. Uh, we've been having a lot of fairly uh, heated discussions at times uh, through this interface, so I've been uh, been pretty excited about that. Um, so just go ahead, as I said, in the questions box uh, and enter there. Um, that's pr for this. That's pretty much all that you need to know. Um, in fact, that's almost exactly all <laughs> that you need to know. Don't worry about anything else. Um, so good. Then, without further ado, let us go on because, as usual, I have a sort of ambitious program, uh, which uh, I, we will see exactly how likely I am actually to complete. Um, but uh, okay, so. What I want to do today, what I want to start with, I, I, I took the liberty of posting discussion topics in advance, um, and this for two reasons. One, that I, I want to make sure, because we have sort of, you know, a, comparably lim a comparatively limited time, we're going to be able to go and spend a good deal of time on the Fellowship of the Ring, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, an hour, at most an hour and a half sessions, six times, that's, you know, it just not going to be nearly enough time to talk about everything we would possibly want to talk about. So I want to keep our discussions fairly focused. I'm happy to, to address other questions and talk about other things that you want to. But one of my goals for this class is I, you know, try, I said in the little, you know, preview video that I made and um, talked about during the open house, what I would really like to... Um, uh, to, to focus on for this class is basically the stuff that we almost never get a chance to talk about when we talk about the Fellowship of the Ring in the context of a larger class. I mean, when I'm teaching, for instance, a survey class on Tolkien, like the class that I recorded and posted on my podcast stream, um, when I'm doing that kind of a class on Tolkien, you know, I've got to go through and we've got to talk about the big stuff. We've got to talk about Frodo and Gandalf and the quest for the ring and the ring's impact on people and all these, you know, these, you know the big major themes, the central story. But inescapably, that means that a lot of the really interesting stuff, um, a lot of the really fascinating characters just get sort of shoved aside, and I, I, I barely have time. Sometimes I'll, I'll force time to talk about them. Like, I, you know, I never go through without mentioning Tom Bombadil at all, for instance, but, um, but I never really get a chance to sit down and kind of look at these things. So for my own, my own 
plan here for this class. That's what I especially want to be focusing on. And now, of course, I'm not saying that you know, we're forbidden to talk about Frodo and the Ring and the Quest and all that kind of thing. We can talk about that stuff. But, uh, but I would like to really focus on the things, as I say, that, that, that tend to get less screen time. And, of course, I mean that both metaphorically and also quite literally, uh, the, the kinds of passages that tend to be cut out of the film versions uh, of the Lord of the Rings. Because, again, when you know, somebody is saying, okay, what's crucial to this story? What can we cut? What can we leave out? Those bits, the bits that end up on the cutting room floor, that's what I really want to focus on. So, so anyway, so I'm, I'm going to be trying to be sort of focused on those things, uh, and uh, we'll we'll see how well I do in accomplishing the uh, the discussion tasks <clears throat> that I have uh, set for myself. I think I have already raised a uh, fair amount of skepticism uh, in uh, some of my returning students about my abilities to do this. So, well, let's give it a shot. I want to start off talking about Hobbit culture, essentially. I want to look at the background that we're given. You'll notice, of course, I, you'll notice. It's a little hard to admit the, to, to miss the fact that you know the book starts with this longish prologue. Now, the prologue, cunningly, you know, in the edition that I've been using, the page numbers I'm using, I'll be using on the PowerPoints and everything today, are to, to this edition. It's the, the Houghton Mifflin Trade paperback edition. I don't know. If you have a different version, it's no big deal. Um, but... Uh, but basically, it's uh, it's it's actually longer than it looks because you you may notice that in this edition they they sort of put at least some of the prologue in sort of smaller type than the rest. I think it's so that it doesn't seem that thick. I remember uh, the first edition of the Lord of the Rings I had was the the sort of the Ballantine um, uh, mass market paperback, you know, the smaller paperback versions, and that prologue is like this thick uh, in that edition and it's kind of intimidating and I remember I clearly remember skipping it the first several times that I read the book but we get this long prologue concerning hobbits and I want you to I want you to be thinking about I'm gonna start with a point uh, some examples that I think are really interesting um, but I want to talk about what do we learn about hobbit culture what are what 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 is the culture of the Shire like as it's described, as we're told in that prologue. So I'm interested to hear about things that you are, um, uh, that, that you are, uh, oh yeah, actually, uh, Erica makes a point about the audio version. The audio version also skips the prologue. Though, actually, Erica, they include it at the end, at least the versions that I got of it. Um, I think, yeah, I'm thinking, I think I'm thinking of the, the CD recordings. I don't know what the audio downloads do. But they included it at the end of The Return of the King. So I actually had to go and uh, um, just basically take those tracks from the, because I've since, of course, uploaded it to my computer and put it on my iPod. So I had to take those tracks from the end of The Return of the King and move them, because I insist on listening to everything in the proper order, uh, back to the beginning. But, uh, but amusingly, um, the first track of the prologue begins with the words, The End from the end of the Return of the King. So whenever I'm listening to the Fellowship of the Ring, I hear the preface, and then it says, the end. You've been listening to the recorded books version, uh, recording of the Return of the King, and then I get the prologue, and then I go back to the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring. So, it, so it's there. It's, it's there, but I, you do have to do a little bit of contortions. Um, uh, but anyway, um, so, so anyway, as I say, I, I would like you to tell me about um, what kinds of things you notice. What, what, what details from the concerning hobbits seem to you especially important in trying to ascertain what the culture is like? So, you know, there are a lot of times that people make 
you know, sort of blanket statements about Hobbit, some uh, about Hobbit culture. Um, it, for instance, one thing which is quite famous is the fact that they like to eat all the time. And sometimes you get the impression in sort of hearing people who don't really know the books all that well that Hobbit culture is just about like you know stuffing their faces constantly. And that's that's not, of course, really uh, the a very nuanced picture of Hobbit culture. So. Um, what are some things that you notice? Now, I want you to uh, to start typing these in. Um, if you type very, very long comments or questions, it's a little harder for me to get to them. Uh, briefer is easier. But let me give you a minute to work on that, uh, and then I'll, I'll go back over those in a second. I'll start with the passage that I wanted to particularly point to here, uh, and this is the description of sheriffs. This might seem an, an odd kind of choice, but I think that it gives some interesting glimpses. The sheriffs was the name that the hobbits gave to their police, or to the nearest equivalent that they possessed. They had, of course, no uniforms, such things being quite unknown, only a feather in their caps, and they were in practice rather haywards than policemen, more concerned with the straying of beasts than of people. They were in all, there were in all the shire only twelve of them, three in each farthing for inside work. A rather larger body, varying at need, was employed to beat the bounds, and to see that outsiders of any kind, great or small, did not make themselves a nuisance. Now, I think there are lots of things that we can see uh, in this paragraph, uh, and there's, you know, I'll start with some, um, I'll start with some kind of general points that I think we can take from this, and you guys might have some stuff that you'd like to add about it as well. One thing, of course, which is which is perfectly clear, but I think quite a stunning thing about Hobbit society is how peaceful it is. Not peaceful in the sense of like, ah, oh, isn't it tranquil, but I mean, peaceful in the sense that people don't fight. I mean, there's the, the crime rate uh, in the Shire. It seems that there is sort of petty crime, uh, you know, like uh, uh, a grand theft, silver spoon, and that kind of thing, right? But, um, but there's no, like, major crime problem. They don't need police. They are more concerned with the straying of beasts than of people. Um, and that, I think, is a really big deal. I mean, you'll remember near the end of The Return of the King when Frodo makes the, in my view, quite shocking statement that no hobbit has ever killed another hobbit on purpose in the Shire. Um, now, of course, there are, there are uh, uh, you know, this is some view, this is a dubious statement Tolkien wrote in his letters about one story of a pretend, a possible suspected murder. But... But anyway, the point is, even if there's any question or debate about this, I mean, to be able, for anyone even to be able to make a dubious and contested statement that there's never been a murder in the history of the Shire is a shocking, shocking thing. Um, certainly from a modern perspective, it bespeaks a kind of harmony among them which is like nothing that we can relate to. So that, that is, of course, one really fundamental reality that we have to hold on to, however much we might see them. They might squabble, they might bicker amongst each other, but... but but they are a genuinely peaceful and peace-loving people. Um, so that, I think, is, uh, um, is very remarkable. Some other smaller things that I would point to here, the, the kind of throwaway line that uniforms are, you know, the, such things as uniforms being quite unknown, um, the fact that there are no uniforms is, I think, an important thing. Um, now, that is... Um, the idea of uniforms is a comparatively modern idea. So, to some extent, he, you know, Tolkien here is just sort of objecting to the uh, the sort of the uniform ugliness of uniforms um, in uh, in the modern world. Um, 
as truly most uniforms are pretty ugly. Um, and But again, that's kind of all of a piece with what Tolkien often said about modern trends and things like architecture and stuff like that. Um, but again, I think it's also important, what is also what is also unknown is not just the clothing, it's not just a physical uniform, but the uniformity that it implies, right? That it's not, you don't have, the sheriffs are not, you know, people who all look the same and are supposed to act the same. When we see the sheriffs in the scouring of the Shire, um, metaphorically, they're probably not literally walking in lockstep, but anyway, you know, sort of taking orders and falling into line, that's not normal for hobbits. That's not what hobbits do. Um, so the sheriffs are distinguished with a feather in their cap, but otherwise they look and act just like other hobbits and differently from each other. Um, there is no sense of, you know, like, you know, clear hierarchy and following orders. That that is also clearly alien to them. But now notice how those two things go together, though, right? That is the the rather profound peacefulness of the society and that lack of hierarchy uh, and uniformity. That is, it doesn't have to be imposed upon them because they're um, they're already <laughs> they're already happy. They don't need it. Um, they are, everybody's already basically looking after themselves. Um, and, uh, and of course, the, the last things that I would point to here is the, the, the bounders, the, the reference to the bounders. A rather larger body, varying at need, was employed to beat the bounds and to see that outsiders of any kind, great or small, did not make themselves a nuisance. Now, so one thing we can see here is that, that tendency towards sheltering themselves, to, to keeping out outsiders. We do see them being, you know, clannish, as the prologue tells us, and territorial. Um, they don't like outsiders. They don't trust people they already know. They don't already know. Uh, and they, but, but notice, they don't just keep them out, right? The bounder's job is not to, you know, prevent outsiders from crossing the borders of the Shire no matter what. They're not a, you know, militant vigilante group. You know, they're not lying in wait and shooting down anybody who comes across. They're just making sure that they did not make themselves a nuisance, right? And again, it's a little vague about what exactly that entails, um, sort of keeping an eye on people. Clearly, people do cross the Shire. There's a road that goes right across them, you know, the East Road that the dwarves take. Uh, from the mountains, so we know that strangers do come through, and hobbits don't stop them from doing so. And you'll remember that actually the kind of sealed boundary of the Shire begins later, begins after the time of King Lessar, um, as a sort of, you know, he in his desire to protect the Shire. Um, but they haven't imposed it themselves, so I think that that's both of those things. Their resistance to outsiders, their suspicion of outsiders, but you know, they are not simply, like, belligerent against outsiders. Um, I think both of those things are sort of interesting and important. Uh, but you guys have had lots of comments. Wow, okay, let me see if I can get uh, get through some of these. And I apologize if I can't get to them all. Um, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do what I can do here. Um, okay. Yes. Yes, good. Uh, Trish was saying how she was interested in the way, and this is, yes, this is a, um, 
this is definitely an interesting thing. The three houses of the of the of the hobbits and how they seem to sort of parallel. And this is something I've seen even uh, Trish has taken even a step further uh, than you're taking it there. Um, that you have um, this sort of the elf oriented line, the fellow hides, um, and there's the others which are kind of like the dwarves, and the other which uh, it doesn't say they're like men, but again, it almost leaves this sort of parallel. The Hobbit world becomes is is made into a kind of sort of semi microcosm of the world around them in a sense. Um, I you don't want to push that too far. I mean, they're not um, they're not actually all that you know directly similar to the elves and dwarves and everything. But it is. But it, nevertheless, it's a trend that's kind of interesting. I think. Um, okay, good. Let's see. Uh, Yes, good. Um, Giselle likes the point about uh, how they like to have books filled with things that they already knew, set out fair and square with no contradictions. Um, yes, yes, and that's interesting, right? That on the one hand, they are, um, they have a kind, like a, a particular species of love of learning, right? They are, they're not naturally bookish. They're not naturally curious, really, in that way. They, they don't have, it seems, an innate desire to explore and find new things. They like books, but they like books that are filled with things they already know, right? Set out fair and square with no contradictions. So we see this to be, see, to be connected with a sense of, you know, a desire for order and an appreciation of orderliness. Um, and uh, uh, but but again, not exactly, not learning in the sense of, um, as I say, intellectual curiosity. That does not seem to be uh, certainly very general among them. Um, uh, David asks, "Who paid the sheriffs?" Um, that's the the mayor of the shire, the mayor of Mickledelving, has two official positions. Right, he's the post. He's the, the, the master of the post service, and also he's the chief sheriff. Um, so presumably he pays the sheriffs. You know that they, they so he is their, they, they do have a superior, um, but uh, their relationship to their superior it seems to be not much at all like what um, the image of people in uniform would suggest. Um, okay, good. Ed is uh, is pointing out the 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 very. Uh, basic fact at the beginning, which I, I agree is very important, um, that we're told they're still around today, they don't have magic, and that they have diminished in size since that time, um, so that is since the time of this story. Um, so they, they're around, they still exist. Um, that is part of the overall fiction of this story, the fictional frame of this story. And I think the prologue is interesting because one is tempted just by the structure of it, one is tempted to read the prologue as something kind of out of character, right? You know, it's not, this is not the official story yet. So the voice that you're hearing speaking to you in, in, in the prologue, whoever's writing the prologue, is not the same as, like, the narrator of the story, right? This is not somebody telling a story. This is somebody giving you information, you know, uh, to prepare you for the book. And that... But, of course, the fictional frame um, is contained within that prologue. In that prologue, which, again, seems to be sort of speaking out of character, or, you know, we might expect it to be, tells us, oh, yes, this is a story from basically something that happened long ago in our part of the world, that is, uh, in northwestern Europe. Um, and that's where, that's where the Shire is supposed, is supposed to be, generally. Um, 
Yes, good. Trish points to the very important uh, line um, of which much has been made, though I think one, again, it's something we need to be a little bit conscious of, that they're not very machine-oriented, that they're not interested in anything more complex than a, than a, than a forge bellows or a loom or a, or a what's the other one, a, a, a mill, right, a water mill? Um, and the thing I think that can sometimes be overblown here is this sense that the hobbits are sort of determinedly simplistic. You know, as if like they are, they have this kind of cultural adhesion to the idea of a simple life, like they're little Amish people or something. And that's not exactly the case. Um, and in particular, I think one of the things, um, one of the, you know, one question that I'm sometimes asked is like, why are forge bellows? Like, why are forge bellows and looms and mills okay? Well, I, I, and I would say that um, the primary trend there is that they are, they like tools, right? They're good with their hands. They like making things. They're good at making things. It's not that they are totally anti, um, you know, mechanical stuff and manufacture and that kind of thing. Um, they just do it by hand. Um, and the distinction that I once made um, in a podcast that was so long ago, I can't remember which one it was now, um, and which I still believe, is that um, the, the primary difference I would point to is they don't like things that do the work of a person, but they do like things that assist the work of a person. Um, so of all of those things, like a loom is just a very complicated tool, right? It is for, it is the tool of a weaver, and it requires skill to run, uh, to run a loom. A forge bellows, of course, is a tool. It's an instrument that used for, you know, by the blacksmith in the making of things. A water mill, though, that is different. That is just a labor-saving device. Now, that's okay, but you'll notice it's the millers who cause the the They're like questionable, right? They're the ones who, uh, um, about whom we're not really quite certain at the beginning of this, and I think that that's no uh, that that's no accident. Yes, as David and Ed have pointed out, they have almost no government. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's um, that's uh, that's that's clearly a very important thing. The hobbits live a basically. Um, you know, a basically benevolently anarchic lifestyle, everybody taking care of themselves. Um, yes, good. Erica was pointing about the, talking about the dislike of machines as well. Um, Nate, that's a really interesting point, um, and well put. He says, they are unintrusive, both physically, how they hide from the big people, and how small they are, and how silent, and in their culture. They existed for a long time, but they play no role in the great events of the first, second, and most of the third ages. Good, yes, they're both individually and, uh, and, and, cor and, and corporately inconspicuous uh, in that way. Um, yeah, yeah, they are in every sense. They are little people. They, they don't, they're not, they've never been a big deal. <laughs> um, they've never been, they've never been noticed. Um, yeah, good. Um, let's see. Yes, good. Uh, Kit adds, you know, in addition to sort of the manual crafts that they have, you know, he's uh, focused both on their, that their agricultural as well, um, you know, that they are much more sort of tied to the land and to, as Kit says, local resources, and that seems, uh, that seems a fair way to say it too. Um, not just tied to the land in general, but to the land around them, right? Um, they are, 
Not, I think, each one of them, certainly. Obviously, they're not each one of them like subsistence farmers or anything. Bilbo and Frodo are certainly not subsistence farmers, but, um, you know, they own land. But nevertheless, they, um, the, the, the hobbits are certainly, as a group, um, they're, they're not big importers of stuff, right? Remember the, of course, later on in the Fellowship of the Ring, we'll talk about that, we'll, you know, we'll meet the, 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 in, no, we will hear rumors about um, about stuff going on back in the Shire, and then in the Two Towers, we will see, of course, the evidence of the export of stuff out of the Shire, which idea uh, shocks um, Strider certainly profoundly. Um, and Liza, that's a really interesting way to think about it. Liza, in sort of thinking also about uh, Giselle's comment about uh, the books that they like, Liza adds, they seem to live in the here and now, not too interested in history, their own or others, and not too interested in the future, as long as it leaves them alone. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, said, I would connect that with Giselle's comment about, you know, them liking to have books full of things that they already know. Um, and it's not their own history that is, you know, like the legends of their people. Um, they like family history, they like family trees, but that's not the same thing. That's more of a here and now thing because that seems to not really go back very many generations. Think of the number of times we hear about the historical doings of hobbits. Um, during the course of the stories. Very, I mean, Bullroarer Took is, you know, just about the only hobbit older than living memory um, that, uh, that really comes into the stories. There are a couple others that are mentioned, like the, you know, Marco and Blanco who go and found the hobbit first. There's a, you know, there's the throwaway reference to them. Um, there's a little bit of context about uh, you know, the old bucks who cross over and found Buckland. But again, those are just sort of geographical context things. It's not like, now let us tell the deeds of our ancestors or tell the story of our people. There's there's none of that. Where, where again, you compare that with, jumping ahead here, but of course I'm going to be, I'm going to make the rash assumption that pretty much everybody in this class has actually read all of the Lord of the Rings before. Just going to go out on a limb there and guess that that's true. Um, and that it's okay if I make the occasional allusion to the Two Towers and the Return of the King, and also hopefully that nobody's going to be too shocked by spoilers uh, if I allude to things that happen at the end of the story. Um, so anyway, I hope I'm, I'm safe on that point. But anyway, um, th think about the difference between the kinds of things that the Hobbits like to have to talk about in their books and the things that uh, the Rohirrim sing about, right? Just the recitation of the names of the kings and, I mean, yeah, I, other than the Took family, can anybody, like, you know, can can somebody in Hobbiton, like, list the last 15 Thanes? I doubt it. I mean, that's, uh, that that would seem to me a little bit unlikely. Um, so, yeah, in that way, I think it's very different. Okay, we're going to have to move on here in a second, though. There are about a thousand more comments that I would love to talk about. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, yes. As Mike says, they are the most like us. That is, and that I think is a really important point, and it's one of the things that I think is really, is one of the consequences of that prologue. We can relate to them. We don't relate to dwarves exactly. I mean, there are things we might admire about them, but they're not like us, right? There are things that we can um, 
appreciate about the elves, but they're definitely not like us. Even the men, you know, like, okay, maybe the men of Bree, some, but like certainly the Dúnedain and, and the people of Gondor, they're not exactly. Hobbits are most like us. Their experience, their lives are most like lives that at least we can imagine, even, even if they're not exactly like us. Um, but, uh, um, but nevertheless, they are our point of contact. And I think that that's one of the crucial things about this prologue, is that it puts us in connection with hobbits um, and gets us kind of contextualized, contextualized into the hobbit world because it is from that point of view, primarily, that the story is going to be told. You know, as I've said before, the Lord of the Rings is told from about three feet above the ground. And that enters into a lot of what we see going on in the story uh, later on. Um, okay, just a couple quick things. Um, uh, I'm just skimming through really quickly. Um, let's see. Yeah, okay. Um, yes, Nate, it's true that Mary knows the history of tobacco, but he has to do research. You think, and, 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 and you get this sense again, you know, the fact that Mary wrote that treatise, he wrote it because nobody had written it before. Um, and the only reason he is really interested in it is because he has sort of made contact with the outside audience, as it were. Um, we we learn by reading the appendices that both Mary and Pippin become quite bookish um, and become involved both in building libraries and in writing books uh, in their later days, um, or at least compiling things. And uh, and it, but again, I think that that's a consequence of one of the ways in which they've changed and they become unlike um, unlike other hobbits, um, the sort of default hobbits in this way. Um, Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, Timothy says, you got to think that books without controversies must have been a longed-for thing with <laughs> Professor Tolkien. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. I don't think he, he might have... I don't, I don't think he would have always, anyway, liked uh, books that you couldn't fight about. He rather liked that. Uh, but, I, <laughs> but I do see what you mean. Um, yeah. Yeah, good, good. Um, okay. Um, yeah, now let's look, and I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to, I'm already threatening to run behind here to nobody's surprise but my own. Um, let's look at, I, I want to go into the, the uh, into the chapter one here. And again, here, I'm just, you know, these passages that I've pulled here are certainly not the only ones to talk about. They're just a few uh, few moments that I wanted to look at because I think they illustrate a particular thing that I'm interested to talk about um, in looking at these opening chapters. This is another glimpse, uh, another glimpse of Hobbit culture, um, uh, you know, surrounding Bilbo there um, in chapter one. This is right after Bilbo disappears at his party. It was generally agreed that the joke was in very bad taste, and more food and drink were needed to cure the guests of shock and annoyance. He's mad, I always said so, was probably the most popular comment. Even the Tooks, with a few exceptions, thought Bilbo's behavior was absurd. For the moment, most of them took it for granted that, this dis that his disappearance was nothing more than a ridiculous prank. But old Rory Brandybuck was not so sure. 
Neither age nor an enormous dinner had clouded his wits, and he said to his daughter-in-law, Esmeralda, "'There's something fishy in this, my dear. I believe that mad Baggins is off again. Silly old fool. But why worry? He hasn't taken the vittles with him.' He called loudly to Frodo to send the wine round again. Now, notice what we can see here. This, I say, you know, this is uh, public opinion. We can see, you know, in their reaction to Bilbo, I think, is fairly revealing about their own assumptions, about their own values. They think he's mad, right? He's, I mean, this is the, that, this is sort of the last straw. He is already odd, right? And, you know, think of their, the way that they were dreading his speech, right? Oh, he's going to recite poetry. Oh, he's going to, he's going to make allusions to his ridiculous adventures, right? Like this crazy guy. Um, so he's already strange. He's already unusual. Um, what convinces them that he's, you know, this is clearly the last straw. He's obviously completely cracked. Um, is they, they, that, that he's pl playing this, he's playing this, this prank. I mean, like doing a magic trick, like pretending to disappear in a flash of light. Like seriously, how juvenile is that? And, and, and this dude is 111 years old? I mean, come on now. Um, that seems to be their reaction. Because you'll notice there's only one point of debate. Of all, in all the stuff that's said here, there's only one thing that the hobbits disagree about. Rory Brandybuck is not different from the rest of the hobbits in that he approves of what Bilbo does, right? Everyone else is like, oh, that was terrible. Oh, he's mad. And Rory's like, I loved it, right? No, that's not, that's not the difference. Notice the difference? The difference is he's one of the very few. He's the spokesman for that very small minority of people who believe that he's actually left, who actually take Bilbo at his word. Bilbo has just said, I'm leaving. Goodbye. Right? This is the end. Um, and Rory and apparently a couple of the Tooks believe that he means what he says, that he's gone off uh, on other mad adventures. But you'll notice what Rory says does not indicate that he approves of this, that he thinks it's a good idea, that he sort of supports Bilbo or thinks like him in any way. He just believes that he's not playing a joke on them to the rest of them. The idea that Bilbo, especially at 11 would go off, you know, adventuring off out of the Shire into the blue again, is so inconceivable that insane is the only the only words they have for it. Um, so that I think is interesting. That is, both of them share um, both groups: the larger group who thinks who think he's just playing a prank, and the much smaller group represented by Rory who take him at his word. All of them disapprove. Um, in fact, there seems to be, I think, a population of one in this in this, you know, at this, at this gathering. One of the gross of people, of the 144 people, uh, yeah, of 144 people, only one of them um, seems to actually support and approve of Bilbo's joke, and that's Gandalf. I don't, I don't even count Frodo exactly, because he doesn't approve, he doesn't want him to leave. Um, he misses him too much, but, you know, look, that's a technicality. Um, but anyway, of the rest of the hobbits, none of the, you know, there's no division of opinion among them as to whether or not going off adventuring is a good idea or not, or whether, you know, it's like, oh, you know, he's off to adventure, but, you know, that's cool. No, it's not cool! <laughs> and once they find out, they all, you know, he becomes legendarily bad. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that that's that's um, that's a really important thing to notice uh, here in this uh, uh, in this passage. 
Um, yeah, good. Yeah, and, and right, as Trish points out, even the Tooks think he's over the top. Um, um, yeah, as Mike says, the best case scenario is that he has bad taste. The worst case scenario is that he is barking mad. I mean, he's completely insane. Those are really the only two options. Um, yeah, very good. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Caden, I agree. You know, Caden says they've actually, you know, disliked him since he came back from his first adventure, or at least distrusted him. I mean, he's been he's been kind and he's been generous, so not everyone has disliked him, but, but yes, they've, they've, they've distrusted him. They've looked skeptically in his direction. Um, you know, as we're told at the end of The Hobbit, um, you know, he had lost his reputation, right? Or rather gained a very different reputation. Lost his old one. Um, Liza, Gandalf does disapprove of Bilbo's prank, that is, of his, of his uh, joke, um, but not of his departure. That's what I mean, like, uh, Bilbo departing from the Shire and going off, Gandalf is fully in support of that, so long as he leaves the ring behind. Um, so, yeah, Bilbo going off into retirement, that's what, that's what I mean by saying I think Gandalf is the only person present who wholeheartedly supports uh, the idea of Bilbo's traipsing off on adventures. Um, yeah, yeah, good. good. Yes, yes, no, a couple of you are uh, expressing concern about Gandalf's disapproval of his joke, Timothy as well. Um, yes, yes. Yes, good. Um, they're envious, yes, well, they're envious of his riches and of his apparently perpetual youth, but they're not, um, by the way, that's one of the, there are a, there are a number of sentences uh, in Tolkien you know, and in The Lord of the Rings, which I just remember from a young age, um, just kind of mouthing to myself over and over, like the rhythm of them and the, um, uh, the, the, just how just the way the words flow and the way the words go together, you know, and that um, that that line about apparently perpetual youth as well as reputedly inexhaustible wealth. Um, that I just could never get enough of that sentence. Um, but anyway, yeah. So they're 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 envious of him in that way, but certainly not envious of him in the sense of wanting to emulate him, wanting to be like him. They like some of the things he has, but um, um, but it's kind. It, it, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't think they're actually, you know, they're certainly not idolizing him or something like that. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, Mike asks, why do a few Tooks prick up their ears when Bilbo proclaims he has a purpose? Um, that is an interesting moment, isn't that? And I think it's because, like, this is the point at which they begin to suspect that he's actually doing something besides just making a speech, right? That this is not just Bilbo going off again, you know, that is like, you know, speechifying again and always oh, about to recite one of his poems next. And, um, you know, when, when he says, you know, I've called you all here for a purpose, the rest of them are like, oh, yeah, what, we're here to, you know, celebrate your birthday. Yeah, yeah, we get it. And, but the Tooks, those of slightly, at least, adventurous disposition, seem to suspect, oh, wait a second, maybe, maybe something is going to happen of some kind. Um, but I wonder, there are a very few exceptions. You know, even the Tooks, with a few exceptions, thought Bilbo's behavior was absurd. Um, I presume, by the way, that the Tooks who thought his behavior absurd are also th um, thinking that it's nothing more than a ridiculous prank. Um, I might be wrong about that, but that's how I always took that. Um, 
but uh, but anyway, yeah. So the 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 Tooks are sort of suspicious that there's something anyway in there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, yeah. Mike, they're picking up on the Tookish vibes. Exactly. They are. You know, they're like, uh, well, or or at least like to say, you know, if you say to a Took, I have a purpose in calling you here today there is at least a chance that they're going to think that there might be something more in that than just because I wanted to have you over for dinner. That was the purpose, um, which seems to be what everybody else is thinking. I wanted to give you gifts and have you over for dinner. Um, they at least understand what a purpose with a capital P uh, could potentially mean, um, even if they don't anticipate um, what uh, what is actually what he actually does. Um, yeah, Casey says, I wonder why Bilbo felt the need to deliver his goodbye with such force. It seems quite violent to me. I wonder if he felt he needed to scream because he thought the attendees too dull to understand him. It's an interesting question. I mean, you're right, especially that, you know, the typeface where you get all, we get all caps locked and, uh, and uh, you know, italicized and stuff. Um, it does, you know, now goodbye! It does seem like shouting. Um that I mean, certainly the goodbye I take for primarily dramatics. Um, why was he going to have his joke? Why did he decide to play that joke? I think it's a really fascinating question, Casey, and I'm not sure that I can give a very simple answer to that question. Because um, I think I, I consider that a sort of a fairly open-ended question. But here's here here's my guess. What I would say about that. Um, Bilbo wants to stir things up. He has kept the ring a secret. Um, so nobody, you know, and he's smug about that. Nobody knows that he has this, or he thinks anyway, nobody knows he has this ring that can make him invisible. And he appears to want to leave an impression. He wants to have, you know, all of his neighbors completely flabbergasted. Uh, that sentence I remember was my introduction to that word, too. Um, he wants to leave his neighbors flabbergasted. He um, uh, he 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 wants this to be a, a memorable uh, thing. Um, he wants to leave them stunned and mystified. He does seem to want to shake them up some, not necessarily unpleasantly. He's not trying to scare them. I don't think he's angry at them or anything like that. Um, but he wants to leave a mystery that they won't understand. Um, and. The kind of thing, you know, like the, the, the legends of Mad Baggins who vanishes in, in, a, in a flash and reappears with bags of gold actually kind of seems to be the kind of thing that he was going for there, honestly. You know, like that's the kind of legend it, it seems he wanted to grow up around him. Um, so it's, I mean, you know, not necessarily those in specific, but again, that, that kind of, like, he wanted his departure to be something that people would talk about uh, for, for you know, generations and generations. Well, he, he's, he's, he's gotten that, even if uh, Gandalf sort of cloaks it a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Dime, I think, um, I, I, I do suspect that I was thinking of the line, too, about Frodo wanting the Shire to be shaken up by an invasion of dragons and things. I, I don't... I'm not sure it has exactly the same tone, but yeah, I, I do think that there's that there's at least a similarity there, um, his wanting to shake them up. Um, even a sense of his wanting to give them something to think about, something along the lines of, 
you thought I was crazy, you never really took me seriously, you listened to my stories but you never believed them, you thought all of my tales of uh, you know, magic and dragons and trolls and spiders and everything was, was you know, couldn't possibly be true. Um, well, here, I've wanted to prove this to you for many years, but I never did, so, uh, you know, here, wham, watch me disappear and then say that, uh, you know, that my stories about magic are impossible. I think that there's a little bit of, uh, of an element of that to it as well. A, a kind, a, just a touch of self-justification, perhaps? Um, yeah, I don't know, but it's a great question, Casey. Um, okay, now let's sort of continue moving uh, down the line here. We've got now the general, one glimpse anyway, of the general public in the background in Hobbiton uh, and the surrounding areas, of course. Um, I want to narrow in a little bit more. Here's Gaffer Gamgee at the Ivy Bush. You see, Mr. Drogo, he married poor Miss Primula Brandybuck. She was our Mr. Bilbo's first cousin on the mother's side, her mother being the youngest of the old Took's daughters, and Mr. Drogo was his second cousin. So Mr. Frodo is his first and second cousin, once removed either way, as the saying is, if you follow me. And Mr. Drogo was staying at Brandy Hall with his father-in-law, old Master Gorbodok, as he often did after his marriage, him being partial to his vittles and old Gorbodok keeping a mighty generous table. And he went out boating on the Brandywine River, and he and his wife were drowned, and poor Mr. Frodo only a child and all. Anyway, there was this Mr. Frodo, left an orphan and stranded, as you might say, among those queer bucklanders, being brought up anyhow in Brandy Hall, a regular warren by all accounts. Old Master Gorbodok never had fewer than a couple of hundred relations in the place. Mr. Bilbo never did a kinder deed than when he brought the lad back to live among decent folk. Okay, now, taking Gaffer Gamgee as a spokesman for a certain portion of the population, and he does seem to be put forward in that role. We are told in general about sort of things that people were talking about, that there was a lot of talk, um, and then we are given this conversation by Gaffer Gamgee and his debate, of course, with the Miller um, as a sample, a representative sample of the kind of talk in the area. So the narrator presents uh, the gaffer to us here as a representative figure. Not representative of everybody, of course. We know that Gaffer Gamgee is in a different social class than Bilbo. He's not exactly Bilbo's social equal, of course. He, he, he was uh, Bilbo's servant for many years, um, you know, or his gardener in any case. So um, so we know that you know he's not like we can't just take him as the typical hobbit, but he is to use the the phrase I sort of half jokingly used uh, in the in the discussion topics. He certainly is a hobbit on the street. Um, he is uh, he is a a kind of least common denominator, and certainly does show us I think some more things about hobbit culture. A um, few things that I would point out here. First of all, notice that, and I'm not going to talk about this too much because it's a Frodo topic, uh, but, uh, but notice Took's really, Frodo's relationship with Bilbo. Um, a lot of people just kind of skim over this fact. It is the fact that Bilbo is related to Frodo on both father and mother's side is something which often people just kind of skim over most people not being hobbits and not being really keen about family history. Therefore, um, often don't 
think too carefully about the actual familial re relations, and I find that most Americans could not identify their second cousin once removed um, if compelled to. Um, uh, I can. I, I came from a very clannish Norwegian family, and I am still in touch with my third cousins. But that's uh, that's a different story. Um, so I, I, I do know what a second cousin once removed is. Um, but uh, but anyway, the, there. So a lot of people's eyes kind of glaze over there. But I think the interesting thing we we see that Frodo's mother was related to Bilbo's mother, right? Um, Frodo's mother was the daughter of the youngest of the old Took's daughters. And of course, Bilbo's mom was one of the old Took's daughters. So Frodo's mom was, was, uh, was Bilbo's mom's niece. Bilbo was first cousins with Frodo's mom, which is why Frodo is his first cousin once removed. That's a generational remove. That's what that refers to. Um, and Drogo Baggins is unsurprisingly related to Bilbo Baggins, um, but they are second cousins. Drogo and Bilbo are second cousins, so Frodo is his second cousin once removed as well. Frodo, therefore, is, shares both the Baggins side and the Took side with Bilbo. And of course, those of you who have you know, listen to my Hobbit lectures uh, um, on you know about Bilbo. Know the you know sort of the big deal that I make about the the Took side and the and the Baggins side, and certainly I think that's a point of emphasis in the Hobbit, though much less so in the Lord of the Rings, certainly. But but we do get this interesting point. He shares the the Bilbo the Baggins side and the Took side with Bilbo, but he's closer to the Took side. Right? He's only his first cousin once removed on the Took side, and he's his second cousin once removed on the Baggins side. Um, so, uh, so they're actually, they are more closely connected on the Tookish side, as of course, certainly turns out to be true, metaphorically. Um, now, um, let's, uh, let's uh, move down. Now, what do you make of Gamgee's comments, Scaffer Gamgee's comments about um, Brandy Hall and um, you know Old Master Gorbadoc and uh, you know sort of his his we see certainly you know one thing that I will throw out there um, which is again pretty obvious is that we see again their resistance to outsiders right and and it's it's a resistance which seems to manifest itself especially when we combine this with the Sheriff passage earlier it's a resistance that seems to manifest itself not necessarily in hostility. Um, but in suspicion, in the presumption that outsiders are queer, are strange, are different in some sense. Um, and, uh, um, you know, he points to, that is, the gaffer points to the two things, really the only two things, um, that are, well, really, okay, there's only one primary difference between the Bucklanders uh, and the other hobbits of the Shire, and that is that they do sometimes go out voting. Um, but, of course, the large family living together at Brandy Hall, we're also told, is not unique to the Brandy Bucks, um, but is unusual. Um, and most families don't live all together in what... Uh, Gamgee calls rather slightingly a regular warren, um, comparing implicitly the brandy bucks to rabbits. Um, okay, good. Um, yeah, just so. Um, I love uh, the italics on boating too, and he went out boating. Like, he could stop the sentence right there, right? He went out boating on the Brandywine River. 
enough said, right? Yeah, absolutely. To Gaffer, that's really all there. And yes, Sharon, I too love the word jewels uh, with a double O. Um, and you can see that's, you know, that when uh, uh, Tolkien does not actually do that much to indicate regional dialects in his dialogue, he could. I mean, like, for instance, we're told that there's a very noticeable difference in the way the hobbits speak and the way that they speak uh, down in Gondor. Um, that, you know, they're always down in, when, when they're down in the south, when, uh, when you know, the, um, when Pippin is down in the south, they can always tell him by his speech, and people will comment on it, right? Um, you know, the, your speech sounds strange to us, but it doesn't look strange to the readers. I mean, okay, yeah, the people in Gondor speak with, with a little bit more archaic, a little bit more stilted language, but it's the accent doesn't look different on the page because Tolkien doesn't represent it. That is, you know, he doesn't do dialect uh, in, his, in his dialogue consistently all the time. Um, but there are a couple places where he does, where he really insists on it, like Jules with a J-O-O-L-S. Um, and, of course, Sam. Sam is one of the only people who very consistently speaks in a dialect, but that's, of course, to separate him from the other hobbits, that he speaks differently um, from... Uh, from the way that they speak, but uh, but anyway, I think that that's um, that's that that's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yes, Robert, yeah, he does mention that one of the one of the differences is their use of the familiar second person pronoun. Pippin's use of the familiar second person pronoun, um, which is Tolkien's explanation for why people respond to him the way that they do. That is why they all assume he's a prince down in Gondor, because when he addresses Denethor, he uses the familiar second person instead of the formal second person. And the only people who would ever use the familiar second person uh, pronoun with a, with a ruler like that is another ruler, so they all sort of assume that Pippin must be some very, very high-ranking person. Um, to just casually refer to Denethor in that way, um, but again, but that's something which would not be obvious, um, because again, in the way that it is being sort of translated for us in Tolkien's edition of this story, which has been translated from the West, the Red Book of Westmarch and the Thanes Book and everything else, that is the, the story as it has come down to us regularizes pronouns most of the time. Um, so that's not even something that would be obvious to us just on a reading of it. Um, uh, Mike asks, is a regular Warren sexual and derogatory? No, I don't think so. I think just in the sense of there, because it's not like he's suggesting that there are too many brandy bucks um, or making some kind of a slur like that. It's just like them all living together, like 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 rabbits living in a huge maze of tunnels and piled up together in burrows, rather than having their own space. Um, but but there is something sort of bestial in that, right? Something um, th that is by implication, he seems to suggest or to imply that it's slightly less civilized than people living in their own proper holes. Um, you can have neighbors, that's one thing, but to all live together in this huge communal existence, that's queer, right? They don't, we don't do that in Hobbiton. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, 
Yeah, Sarah, that's a really interesting point. Um, you know, Sarah talks about the, you know, sort of the, the, the implication of how scandalous it is that they're out boating, when she says, but then again, you know, it's a Baggins and a Took. Oh, of course, you know, she is, you know, Miss Primula Baggins at that point. But yeah, or, you know, and she had been a Brandy Buck. But again, she is, uh, she is a, you know, she, you do have that Took side and Baggins side together. Um, but again, even that is an interesting kind of thing. Um, we don't get the sense that old Bungo Baggins, Bilbo's dad, would have gone out boating. Um, at least the very few things that are said about him suggest that he would not have done that. Um, but Drogo does, which is, I think, an interesting point and again suggests the fact that um, Frodo is uh, a little bit more took than very staid and formal Baggins. Um, yeah, good. Um, Good. Okay, so now we go to a fourth example, and this, of course, is Sam. I want to go to the parallel scene in the Green Dragon at the beginning of Chapter 2. At the beginning of Chapter 1, we get the gaffer holding forth at the ivy bush, and uh, we've, you know, we've, so we've got him as sort of the representative speaker. In Chapter 2, we get Sam as a representative speaker, um, speaking to the son of the miller. So we have this sort of obvious genera generational parallel. So Tolkien seems to be more or less overtly inviting us um, to, uh, to make a connection here and to think about this. Sam's perspective is different. Um, all the same, said Sam, you can't deny that others besides our Halfast have seen queer folk crossing the Shire. Crossing it, mind you. There are more th there are more that are turned back at the borders. The bounders have never been so busy before, and I've heard tell that elves are moving west. They do say they're going to the harbors, out away beyond the White Towers. They are sailing, sailing, sailing over the sea. They are going into the west and leaving us, said Sam, half chanting the words, shaking his head sadly and solemnly. But Ted laughed. Well, that isn't anything new if you believe the old tales, and I don't see what it matters to me or you. Let them sail, but I warrant you haven't seen them doing it, nor anyone else in the Shire. Now, what do we see here? What do we make of this? Um, we have, of course, you know, I gave you, I, I did not, of course, give old, uh, uh, the old Miller, uh, any fair play in uh, my previous passage. I've given you a little bit of Ted here um, because I think that we can see an interesting shift here. Um, we can see some similarities. If we do some careful comparison and contrast, we can see, I think, some similarities between Ted's comment and the gaffer's perspective before. There's some similar resistance to outside things, things which are not, you know, of our world, of our little culture right here, are irrelevant to us. The gaffer at least is interested in them, right, and talks about them even if he's dubious about them and thinks they're queer. But, um, uh, but, but Ted is obviously much more scornful about them. Um, but Sam, of course, has a perspective which is quite different. Um, he's talking about um, again, this same issue of outsiders, right? Outsiders, in this case now, outsiders, not just outsiders of, of their little patch of the Shire, but outsiders to the Shire entirely. Um, Non-Hobbit outsiders, in this case, particularly elves. Um, and um, yes, yes, um, he is... 
different. As Sharon says, um, Sam just loves stories and tales. He sometimes speaks like a story. Yes, his his little chant here that he gets into, he doesn't quite go into verse, but they are sailing, sailing, sailing over the sea. They are going into the west and leaving us. It's rhythmical. It's poetic. It's not quite poetry, but it is poetic. Um, there's no other excuse for the repetition of sailing. Um, they are sailing, sailing, sailing over the sea. Um, yes, yes. Um, so we can see him getting swept up, even in the form of his speech. Um, we can see him getting swept up into this story, at least, song at most, um, sort of mode. Um, yeah, good. As Kit says, Ted assumes if it isn't happening locally, it isn't even real. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even you know, his his insistence at the end, but I warrant you haven't seen them doing it, nor anyone else in the Shire. Well, no, but actually think about Ted's statement there, and it doesn't make a lick of sense. On the one hand, like, anything that's not in this region is irrelevant to us, and I'm going to prove that by saying that you've never been outside the region, so you haven't seen it. I go, of course they've not seen them leaving the Shire. They haven't seen them sailing away. They have to leave the Shire to do that and go to the Great Havens, which of course are not actually all that far away, but they'd have to do it. They have to go there. Um, and Ted is obviously not supporting that. Um, so the, the kind of the, the, the circularity of Ted's reasoning there, because I never leave the district, I've never seen these things. Because I've never seen these things, they don't, they're not real and they don't matter. Um, is uh, it, you know is itself I think a clear indication of how insular, how inward facing he is. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, good. Let's see. Yeah, Kit says outsiders are unimportant to the point of being impossible. Um, yes, yes. Liza, I absolutely agree. Sam, Sam has been tainted by having been taught his letters by old Mr. Bilbo. The gaffer was saying that he hoped that no harm would come of it. I love that line. Uh, you know, when he says that Bilbo has taught him his letters, meaning no harm, mark you, and I hope that no harm comes of it. Um, too late, man. He's totally been infected. Um, harm has come of it to poor gaffer Gamgee's um, uh, uh, offspring here. Um, and yeah, as Mike points out, the sadness and solemnity is not just Sam's sadness and solemnity. Solemnity, He has imbibed that from the stories themselves. As Mike points out, elves are sad and solemn. Not always, but often. Um, and, uh, um, and Mike also points out Sam looking at the stars uh, as he walks home, continuing to make music whistling. Um, yeah, yeah, and we can see lots of lots of that kind of thing. We we can see that he has been very thoroughly infected by this other world, by this larger world, as indicated by his looking up at the stars, not just at the ground and the land around him. He is part sort of plugged into that bigger thing, um, like of course the elves themselves, who do a lot of looking at the stars, as we see when we meet them. Now, um, this I think is one of the clearest indications that we get of this counterculture that has grown up. It's one of the big differences between the first couple chapters of the Ho of the Ho or the first chapter of the Hobbit and the first couple chapters of, of the Lord of the Rings. In the Hobbit we have this Hobbit culture, this dominant Hobbit culture, this small subset of semi-deviant 
people, the Tooks, that is. And then you've got Bilbo kind of poised in between them and sort of branching out from that Hobbit culture almost entirely. Um, but there's still, there's this clear sense of the Hobbit mainstream. We still see the Hobbit mainstream, but the the Hobbit counterculture is different. It's not just the Tooks doing their own kind of semi-idiosyncratic clannish thing. Um, there is this sort of horizontal infection. I, I say horizontal because it's not clannish. Um, I think it's a fascinating and important thing that although there are familial relations among uh, the, the, you know, the friends that are gathered together, um, they're n none of them have the same last name. You've got a Baggins, a Gamgee, a Brandybuck, a Took, uh, a Boffin, um, uh, you know, a, 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 um, a, a Bulger, they, um, a, a Brace Girdle, Hugo Brace Girdle. Um, the group of people that are friends with Frodo, those who become attached to Bilbo, they come from all different families. This infection has spread outside of the Tooks. Um, I keep calling it an infection, of course, not to actually imply that it's bad. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's clearly um, it's it's clearly a, a, a significant change because it's not insulated within the Took clan. And this subculture is one which is markedly different from. Uh, from the society around them. Sam is our first clear spokesperson of that culture. I mean, of course, we've met Bilbo and Frodo, and we know that they're different, but they're, but that's one thing, right? The Bagginses, that is, the Bagginses we know, Bilbo and Frodo, have always been, by definition, isolated. That is, they're bachelors living either, you know, alone or just together, the two of them, um, in Bag End, separated from, uh, from, they've got neighbors, but, but again, they don't, they're not, we don't see them acting as part of a big clan, um, even though again they have connections. But um, but they are definitely sort of separated out, being, you know, on their own in their in their luxurious hole there in Bag End. Um, it's the other Sam is the first person that we see who suggests to us a change has been made in Hobbiton as a whole as a consequence of Bilbo's adventure. It's not just that he has like trained up an apprentice hobbit <laughs> freak show in Frodo who's going to take after him and carry on his uh, reputation for oddity. Um, it goes well beyond that. And I want to look at that here. And it may be, uh, may be the last thing that we get to. We'll see. Um, this is Frodo. Erica, I think that this, I think you were the one who was referring to this passage before. Um, this is Frodo's statement. I think we can see there's so much we can say about this. Um, his response when Gandalf asks him, has he decided what to do at the end of chapter two? I should like to save this shire if I could, though there have been times when I thought the inhabitants too stupid and dull for words and have felt that an earthquake or an invasion of dragons might be good for them. I just pause for a second to gloss the word stupid. Um, stupid doesn't mean unintelligent. Um, it does not mean what, the way that we use the word stupid. Um, the word stupid
insulting their intelligence. What he's saying is that they're sleepy, they're boring, and they're bored. Um, it's like the, the, what he's complaining about is how mundane the Shire is and the Shire inhabitants are. Not that they're that they're. And this is one thing that I actually. Um, and notice I've gone this long without making any comments about the films, but I'll make my first comment about the films now. Um, one thing that I didn't like, I, there are many things that I do like about the depiction of hobbits and hobbiting and the concerning hobbits bit at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring film, but one thing that I don't like about it is the, when they are depicted as being sort of bumpkinish um, and just like when they're actually depicted as being stupid and dull in the, in, in the modern sense. Um, uh, like I... I the way that we are, the, the, not just the fact that we're invited to laugh at them, but the way in which we're invited to laugh at them um, is something which I just never really struck me as quite right, I would say. Um, but uh, anyway, so that's just sort of a, a, minor, a minor complaint. Um, Oh, Lisa, that's a good point. I want to. I'll come back to this before I move on. Lisa says that the countercultural Bilbo's counterculture is not clannish, but perhaps generational. I.e., some of the younger hobbits. Um, yes, yes, that seems to be true. Frodo is by far the senior member of this counterculture generation. Um, so, yeah, that, that certainly does seem to be a trend. Um, but uh, anyway, okay, sorry. Inhabitants too stupid and dull for words. Uh, I will go on. But I don't feel like that now. I feel that as long as the Shire lies behind, safe and comfortable, I shall find wandering more bearable. I shall know that somewhere there is a firm foothold, even if my feet cannot stand there again. Of course, I have sometimes thought of going away, but I imagine that as a kind of holiday, a series of adventures like Bilbo's or better ending in peace. But this would mean exile. And I suppose I must go alone if I am to do that and save the Shire. But I feel very small and very uprooted and, well, desperate. The enemy is so strong and terrible. Now, pause here for a second. What do we see here in those first two paragraphs? Thinking about what we've been looking about, about Hobbit values and sort of the, the characteristic perspectives of Hobbit culture here and some of the ways in which... Um, you know, Bilbo has himself deviated and led some others to deviate from those values and from those perspectives. What strikes you as interesting about how Frodo is thinking and talking about the Shire and Shire culture here? And it starts off thinking, um, sounding like he's like pro-Bilbo counterculture, anti-tradition, right? That like, you know, since I'm part of the Bilbo, the new Bilbo subculture, I thought the inhabitants too stupid and dull for words. I think that invasion of dragons might be good for them. Um, that he wishes they could all be woken up and that life could be made a bit more exciting, but that's not how he goes on. Um, yeah, Eric, good Erica says, Frodo seems to jump ahead to the idea of saving the Shire, right? That is, the, clearly, he's not... Um, notice the tenses there. Um, there have been times when I thought the inhabitants have been times. Past perfect, right? Um, that is, it's over. The times... When I thought that are in the past, he doesn't feel that now, as he goes on to say. Now I feel that as long as the Shire... I added the now, but that's what he's saying, right? I feel that as long as the Shire lies behind, safe and comfortable, I shall find wandering more bearable. Um, now he sees... Um, so we have this, in a sense, a kind of return. 
if I, ooh, hey, we can do a little there and back again thing with this, right? That is, if you start from those those provincial Hobbit values that we were looking at, that provincial Hobbit perspective, and again, I think Gaffer Gamgee is one of the most kind of benevolent illustrations that we get of that. Again, not like Ted Sandyman. Um, but then he's he you know, himself in his own experience moved past that to uh, to accepting Bilbo's values, to, to having a desire for the wider world, to being bored uh, by the boring inhabitants in the boring country um, uh, ar around him. But now he's gone back again. Now he sees that original thing, which he had begun to think just dull and sleepy. Um, it needed to be shaken up, it needed to be disturbed. Now he doesn't think that anymore. Now he's come back and he sees it from a new perspective. Um, and he desires, yes, as Sharon says, to, to, to protect Hobbit culture. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, as Nate says, Frodo loves the Shire. Um, and while he personally wants more adventure at times, he appreciates, he appreciates the sheltered life of the Hobbit world. His exposure to the world, being aware of its dangers, make him appreciate the comfort of Shire life. Um, that is certainly the, the effect that, that um, this has on him here. Um, yeah, good. Um, but now notice no, my favorite part, that third paragraph. He did not tell Gandalf. But as he was speaking, a great desire to follow Bilbo flamed up in his heart, to follow Bilbo, and even, perhaps, to find him again. It was then and there, down the road, without his hat, as Bilbo had done on a similar morning long ago. So, joined with this, you know, you've got his new perspective, on the Hobbit culture, we didn't. I didn't even talk about that second paragraph much. That is right. His his appreciation. He also has a new perspective on those adventures, right? Um, you know, like oh, this whole treasure hunt thing that sounded like fun. Like Bilbo's adventures all turned out well. Um, he's not really thinking of it as like a serious thing with horrible, powerful, evil things trying to kill you. Bilbo experienced that, but you know, it's all fun and games when you're coming back and telling stories about it. Um, so this first paragraph shows, you know, this whole situation has given him a, a renewed perspective on, a renewed appreciation for Hobbit culture. The second paragraph shows a new nation for, uh, and a new wariness of, uh, the life of adventure. And then the third paragraph gives us a sudden powerful desire to run out the door without his hat or his pocket handkerchiefs, right? Why? First two paragraphs seem to add up like one plus one equals two, right? That is, to a re reluctance to leave, right? or, you know, noble willingness to leave, right? I'm going to sacrifice myself. To, you know, I, I would like to save the Shire. Sure, yeah, okay. But, but dread, fear, terror, don't want to leave? No, it manifests itself in this sudden desire to follow Bilbo. And he almost runs out the door. Why? How do we understand that? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, Wes Liza points out, Gandalf seems to inspire this impulsiveness to go out on adventure. It's one of the things we're warned about Gandalf at the beginning of The Hobbit, right? Um, he's responsible for all of those lads and lasses going off on mad adventures. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Nate says he wants to go there and back again. Yes, but but he's just been saying in the previous paragraph that he realizes he might not come back again. That this is not a there and back again thing that he's going off that he's going off on. I don't think his desire to follow Bilbo. No, I, I'll be stronger than that. The previous paragraph shows that he's not just feeling this desire out of ignorance. He might have, you know, even a week before. Um, he's had this desire to follow Bilbo. He's had this desire for adventure. He looks at maps and wonders what lies beyond their edges. He likes to talk to strangers. Likes to talk to strangers. And here's what's going on in the outside world. So we see all that stuff going on. We see this desire for adventure. But, again, one plus one, right? Paragraph one here plus paragraph two would seem to equal... Uh, you know, like he he should be scared straight at this point, right? I used to want to follow Bilbo, but come to think of it, you know, the enemy is so strong and terrible. Um, I'm good, actually. I'm fine. Uh, uh, bag end. I'll stay. Um, but that's not it. That's not his reaction at all. And again, it's not. It's also not just noble self-sacrifice. He is feeling that, but there's more than that. There is this spontaneous desire to go running eagerly out the door, which seems counterintuitive under the circumstances. Um, and I agree, Mike, that there is lyrical language used. Again, the, uh, the desire flamed up in his heart, that metaphor that's given to us there of this desire leaping up like flame uh, in Bilbo's heart is... Uh, is uh, an, it is interesting that we get that kind of poetic touch there. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, do may I agree? I mean, it, it, this does sound like Turkishness. Though, here's another thing I'd throw in here, and we're sure not getting beyond this slide. Another thing I would throw in here is um, that. Bilbo, uh, right, good, Sarah, very good. I was just about to say this, and I just saw that Sarah was saying a very similar thing. Very good. Sarah reminds us, as I was just going to do the same, Bilbo never really wanted to leave for his first adventure, that is. Um, yes, this is the big difference. Frodo himself is misremembering the story. It is not a desire for adventure flaming uh, within, flaming up in his heart that leads Bilbo to dash out down the, down the, the, the lane without his hat. Right, he goes out. He doesn't. He, you know, he'll to the end of his days. He never remembered how he ended up running. You know, pelting down the road as fast as his furry feet would carry him. Um, he only goes because he's late for his appointment. He he's completely. It is almost without conscious choice that he ends up actually embarking. He does make a conscious choice the night before when he steps back into the room uh, and you know bristling at Glowin's comment about his being more like a grocer than a burglar. But that morning, he he does. He, he it is almost without. Uh, a conscious choice that he steps across his threshold and goes. Whereas with with Frodo, Frodo's desire, which he, which the narrator is telling us, which seems to be in Frodo's mind, Frodo is connecting it with Bilbo's running out the door, is almost the opposite of what Bilbo was experiencing. Uh, you know, uh, desire for adventure was like the last thing on Bilbo's mind as he was running down, um, as he was pelting off down the lane. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, so, I mean, Sarah, he certainly, he's, uh, you know, as you say, he wants to save, he wants to save the Shire. He's wanting to save the Shire from the enemy. I mean, he knows, like, the Dark Lord is going to come find him here. He doesn't, like, anticipate the whole Ring Ray thing, of course, at least not 
eerily soon enough. Um, but um, um, but yeah, I mean, he knows the enemy's going to come after him. He, he doesn't want you know uh, like armies of orcs descending on the Shire. He knows the stories. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, Sarah, good. Sarah's picking up again on um, on Mike's comment about the metaphor there. You know, she says, well, what about flame, right? Flamed up in his heart. Th that's potentially a, 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 an ambiguous metaphor, right? Um, that fire is destructive. Remember that uh, he thought an invasion of dragons who, you know, breathe fire might be good for them. We see his own world kind of shaken up, and he seems to like it. Maybe that's the connection we're supposed to be making here, um, that he, you know... Paragraph two, he's like, this is like an invasion of dragons in my life. And paragraph three is like, but I love it, right? You know, maybe, or part of him loves it anyway. Um, and Timothy, I agree, we can't overlook the fact that he is also motivated by his love of Bilbo. His, just, his desire to follow in Bilbo's footsteps, even if under very different circumstances. His desire to seek after and find Bilbo again. Um, that's what is really, it's one of the things clearly that's really driving him there. Um, as we're told later on, it's one of the things that he is really wanting to do. Yes, he's leaving. He wants to save the Shire. He's trying to keep the ring safe. Um, but his personal goal? Find Bilbo. Um, we're, we're, we're told that pretty clearly. Um, uh, Liza has a very interesting um, conspiracy theory here. Uh, she says, Gandalf is the wielder of the flame uh, of the flame of Honor. Is it some of Gandalf's fire? Um, I think it's a good theory. I think it's a good theory, especially when we are told what the Ring of Fire can do, that is what is the point of the Ring of Fire. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that that's a coincidence, actually, but um, uh, but anyway, you know, we'll see, we'll see. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. All right, we are almost totally okay. All right, I almost said we're almost out of time. Truth be told, we're like twenty-five minutes over time already. Uh, but I had said in my mind an hour and a half is the maximum I would keep you. I'd said you know we'd plan to go for an hour. Um, I don't think I fooled very many people about that. Um, Ed claims to have won the pool. Uh, congratulations, Ed. But that's not quite fair because you knew how to bet on this one. I I I don't. I don't think that that's uh, uh, that's pretty easy money. Let me let me make a couple brief, or at least uh, for things that we don't get a chance to discuss in too much detail. Let me at least um, point to them some of the things that I wanted to look at. So at the very least, you can be looking at it on your own, and perhaps also discussing it on the on the discussion board somewhat. Um, two things: first, Gilder and the elves. Um, I wanted to talk about Gilder and the High Elves. That encounter is one of the uh, one of those things that I would point to as one of those you know cutting room floor scenes from the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, we get that little brief substitute for that encounter in the extended edition of the Peter Jackson film. That is Frodo and Sam seeing the elves, uh, uh, you know, in the distance marching. Um, but that is no replacement really for this encounter with Gildor. Um, the couple questions, well, okay, 
I, I, I'll give you with one I'll give you one observation and one question about Gilder, and that is first the observation. Let me let me not just uh, ask it. Let me uh, let me just read a tiny bit here. Um, This is indeed wonderful, they said. Three hobbits in a wood at night? We have not seen such a thing since Bilbo went away. What is the meaning of it? But we have no need of other company, and hobbits are so dull, they laughed. And how do you, how do you know we are going the same way as you? For you do not know whether, whither we are going. And how do you know my name? We know many things, they said. We have seen you often before with Bilbo, though you may not have seen us. Now, who do these people sound like? I would suggest that these people sound a heck of a lot like the elves that we meet in Rivendell in The Hobbit. When I'm teaching the whenever I'm teaching The Hobbit, I make the suggestion, which sounds like pure blasphemy to people who know Tolkien well, that those elves singing those ridiculous songs and teasing Bilbo and the dwarves in The Hobbit are probably Noldor, survivors of the downfall of Gondolin. Um, and I am often ridiculed by people who find this idea shocking. Clearly, those are some kind of infantile, much less important, far less tragic elves, um, who, uh, because Noldor would never carry on like that, would never joke with people like that. They are far too solemn and serious. Guess what? Doesn't this sound the same way? Couldn't you just, you know, but, 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 but seriously. Um, uh, I mean, like the business about hobbits being so dull, right? We have no need of other company and hobbits are so dull. That's exactly like, don't dip your beard in the foam, father. And uh, I, the, 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 the teasing, it's very similar. It's very similar. They're talking just like them, and the laughter and making a joke out of everything and laughing and delight at everything that comes. It's just like the elves of Rivendell, who sing the ridiculous song that so many people dislike so much uh, in The Hobbit. So, and guess what? These are Noldor. These are high elves. They're identified explicitly as such. Um, so this passage is for one thing, my counter-argument to people who say that those can't possibly be Noldor, uh, who are behaving so very frivolously in The Hobbit. The tra la la lali elves, exactly. Um, yes, Giselle, I too can easily see these elves singing tra la la lali. In fact, they probably do. We know that they sing a lot of things. We're only given the one thing that they sing, of course. We're only given the one set of words. Uh, and that, of course, is the Elbereth song, so that's very serious. But... Um, but anyway, I don't think that it is antipathetic to the Tralalalali song. Anyway, so that's the, the one observation uh, that I would um, that I would make about uh, Gildor and the High Elves. Um, uh, Caden, I'm glad that you like the Rivendell song. There are, there are several people that do, um, but it, I know that it annoys many. Um, the other thing, the question that I would ask: Why High Elves? Now, asking why is often a sort of a silly question. Let me ask that another way. Um, it's, of course, interesting that they meet elves. This obviously picks up on the conversation between Sam and Ted that I quoted from before. Um, we have been set up for this encounter um, by that, you know, now, you know, ha having been left with that semi-challenge by Ted, right? I warrant you haven't seen them doing it well.
different by the fact that they are high elves that they meet. Um, and you know, again, that too is a difficult question. But again, I think it's I think it is significant. I think it's important. I think it's significant that the elves that they meet are high elves with this great and noble tradition, singing songs of Elbereth and and you know singing what appear to be hymns to the stars and to the Valar when the stars rise. Um, how does that impact the story? How does that? What relevance does that have? to the story as it is proceeding here at the end of chapter 3. So that's my, that's my big question there. Um, that, Precisely pointed to how you can tell. How can you tell there is exactly one word different in Frodo's version and Bilbo's version, right? Um, yes, good. Sharon, Erica, Giselle, exactly. And the word is eager. Pursuing it with eager feet. That's Bilbo's version. Frodo's version, as Erica points out, weary feet. Pursuing it with weary feet. Um, and this is a really cool example. It's a fun comparison and contrast. Um, I didn't assign that one as a paper topic because I don't want to. I, I don't want to. It's a little, it would be a little bit infuriating to start things off with write a paper about one word. But, um, but that one word is a is a cue, right? If we take that one word difference, eager changed to weary in Frodo's recitation of the song, and then we look at that in context, um, that word, that one word change is transformative to the entire song. The understanding of this song and how it fits in with Bilbo's psychology and as an expression of Bilbo's feelings at this moment. And this is, of course, when he's uh, when he's being swept off his feet at last, right? When he's finally setting off, having just released the ring and is setting off uh, on on his last adventure. He sings this song. Frodo sings it right after he has left Bag End, um, not not in quite the same place that it. He's not, you know, Bilbo sort of standing on his doorstep singing it as he as he goes off. Um, Frodo is not on his doorstep. He's further away, but he's just left Bag End, and of course he's feeling very differently about his journey. Um, but again, I love the way that that one change of a word changes, and again, and it really changes the whole thing. You can take these lines, you can take this song in very. of the same words are exactly identical. Um, and whither then, I cannot say. Um, you know, said in an air of hopeful adventure, like, isn't that great? Like, 
we're off on an adventure. That's what adventure means. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, to the future is an open is a is a blank page. I you know the future is a dark ending that I cannot see. I don't know whither then I cannot say. Um, you know the the meeting of many paths and errands, which sounds which can be curious or can be ominous. Uh, anyway, it's um, it's this is both fascinating in the sense of you know this poem does what I think not all of the songs I think in the, in the Lord of the Rings operate in the same way that I think most of the songs in the Hobbit do. Um, this is the songs in the Hobbit, as I've argued many times before. Um, give us a lot of information about the characters, about the situations. We learn stuff from the songs um, that we don't, we wouldn't get anywhere else, or we understand them more clearly and powerfully in the songs if we pay attention to them than we see them elsewhere in the prose. Not all of the songs in the Lord of the Rings act that way, but this one does, I think. Um, and, but again, it is, it is, it is so brilliant. I just, I think it is a, it, it's an incredible, both poetic and narrative tour de force, the way that Tolkien takes that same song, recontextualizes it, and uses it to convey that same sort of higher level of psychological and emotional complexity of a character in a situation in two different ways with two different levels of emotion with the same words. It's just, just awesome, incredibly done. Um, yeah, good. Um, Giselle, I absolutely agree. Frodo would say it more slowly. That is absolutely how I, if I were reading it aloud, that's how I would do it. I would do, um, you know, the road goes ever on and on with a sort of a quick and bouncy rhythm with Bilbo and much more slowly and solemnly uh, with Frodo. That does, I think, really pick up on the tone of it. Um, yeah, good. However, as Nate says, the class is not going to, or it's just asked, uh, the class shall not ever go on and on. <laughs> I shall stop. Uh, next time, uh, we will focus on, on other stuff, especially, of course, uh, Tom Bombadil and Goldberry. Uh, though I do want to begin by looking at um, a, a, you know, the other big dose that we get of this Hobbit subculture um, in the conspiracy. And I don't want to skip Farmer Maggot either. He's one of the easily skippable. I want Farmer Maggot to be more than just uh, more than just you know a scythe hoisted up above the 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 cornrows um, uh, th that he is in the movie. So anyway, we will look at that. Uh, we'll look at that next time. Thanks very much, everybody. You were extremely active in your participation. This was a lot of fun. Um, I, I apologize that I didn't get to everybody's comments. Um, there were. So so many, and they're so good. I'll be looking through some of them. Please do continue the conversation on the discussion board, um, and uh, I will look forward to seeing you guys again on Thursday. Thursday night, same time. Talk to you guys later on. The organizer has ended the session.